Show me the way to go home I'm tired and I want to go to bed I had a little drink about an hour ago And it's gone right to my head Wherever I may roam Over land or sea or foam You can always hear me singing this song Show me the way to go home Welcome to the Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers, and now we have the wrong impression of sharks engraved in our minds. Joining me today are Peter. Yeah, hello. And Barrio. Yo, yo. And I am Inanna. Thank you, listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. Today's main discussion will be talking about um, Steven Spielberg's Jaws, the first blockbuster summer movie. That's a classic monster adventure from 1975 that I always wanted to see. Uh, but before we get into that, we'll be talking about... Peter, what we'll be talking about next week? Uh, we'll be talking about Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Yes, we're going philosophical. That's a book. I think it's a very, very old book. Somewhere between the Bible and uh, Sapiens. Somewhere between there. <laughs> cool. And also, I just wanted to mention that you can find all the way to contact us in the show notes. Feel free to email us anything. If you're enjoying this, uh, the best way to help us grow is to tell people about us. Does your mom love Mel Brooks films? Do you think your best friend might enjoy listening to the album Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young? Does that annoying guy at your office like weird video games? We cover all of those things in previous episodes. So let people know. And if you have any complaints, it's not www. It's www. So <laughs> four W's. Odd, odd, but... Um... Yeah, just send all your complaints there, so we'll, we'll get to them. <laughs> and one more thing we wanted to do before we go into the main discussion. Barrio, recently you found a very interesting question on Reddit, on the Ask Reddit subreddit that was originally posted by username sled underscore says. Peter, do you mind reading it for us as our uh, resident native English speaker? Yeah, I, I will. Okay. Anthony Bourdain once said, There's a guy in my head, and all he wants to do is lay in bed all day, smoke pot, and watch old movies and cartoons. My life is a series of stratagems to avoid and outwit that guy. Who is that guy for you, and what do you do to avoid him? This is probably the most ongoing struggle, at least in my life, to, to make myself keep moving, because it gets so tiring that you do just want to lay in bed all day, smoke pot, and watch cartoons, right? Or play video games. And, and I think I still keep fantasizing about like the time when, when it, it will be appropriate, you know? Like uh, when, when you go, <laughs> when, when you retire, and then you can play all those wonderful video games that you keep hearing about and, and seeing these movies and, and saying, oh, if I just had a couple of days off, I could probably play this and that. But the thing is that it's just friggin addictive. <laughs> like once you started and, and start slacking off, it's, it's so hard to get back and move your life. Wait, so you're saying that your guy in your head is like the guy in the question. You just want to lay in bed all day long, smoke pot, watch movies. Yeah, I guess I, I think it's literally what, what's written there. I'm kind of staying in my comfort zone. 
one of the things that, that I'm kind of working on in the past couple of years is trying to always push myself and try new things and get out of my comfort zone uh, and find out new things that I might enjoy or a new uh, skill that, that I might develop. And, and it, it kind of proves itself, I guess, in, in the normative way. But like there's still the urge to, um, to slack off. I, I don't think I got like any kind of other serious addictions, but like definitely just staying in my comfort zone is always seems so cozy. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the, the way but I found out that like, like, like I guess it's not it's not a real big deal, but like in order to grow you, you have to go get out of that comfort zone. What about you, Peter? Uh, for me, I find that um, well, the question is really, what do you do to overcome being addicted to just the most superficial things? And I try to get addicted to different things. So most of my days are sort of spent like if I'm not at work or even if I'm at work um, is just information consumption. So and some of the information could just be Netflix or something like that. But so what I do is I sort of I try to buy enough books or subscribe to enough informational podcasts. So then I just have that all to go through and I don't end up getting stuck watching like Rick and Morty or something like that, even though that's great. But <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like the more like quality content I'm consuming, like the less like bottom of the barrel stuff that I have to sit through. Because I'm going to sit through content. I already know it. So I may as well make it the best content. So I try to limit my YouTube mm. use. I try to limit my Netflix use a little bit. Although there's some good stuff on both of those. But most of the time I'm trying to get through audiobooks or just normal physical books or just like a podcast or something like that. So, um, yeah. Um, for me, I, I don't find myself in this question. The guy in my head is very different than the guy in the question. He wants to stay in bed all day long and smoke pot and watch all movies and cartoons. And while I'm not against any of that, it seems scary to me to stay in bed all day long and do nothing, really. I mean, uh, I know watching old movies and cartoons, you know, it makes you think, it makes you, uh, it exposes you to new ideas, to different uh, cultures and everything. But I never, never find myself laying in bed at all or wanting to lay in bed all day long. I mean, if I have a few empty hours, then I usually, I, I don't know, I never kind of find myself not doing anything. The one thing that gets me is video games. I really am interested in the soundtracks of video games, uh, the voices that people do for video games, the stories, the challenges, uh, just the art as a whole. And my guy, you know, he, he just wants to leave everything and dive deep into the world of video games. This is the something that I find myself most often aching for, you know, I, I Every once in a while, I just want to leave everything and just go play video games. But it's also one of those things that's just low enough on my priority list that I keep pushing it off. And no, every once in a while, I get myself a couple of days off and then I just play one video game from beginning to end. What you're saying is that you're trying to make time to play video games or is that like kind of your guilty pleasure that you keep being pulled towards and, and you're trying to keep yourself from it in order to uh, make time and focus on, on other aspects mm -hmm. of your life? I try to make time for it and like almost, I don't know, every couple of days when I come back home, I, I go over what's left for me to do today and I find the time to play video games but by by the point I get to play video games there's always something more important so I always am planning to play video games but I always end up not playing them I think you've misunderstood the question <laughs> mm. um, because the point of the question right 
is there's this inner homunculus that is within us that's saying like, oh, come on, let's just stay in bed another hour. And then we sort of say that homunculus, oh, no, I've got to, you know, set an alarm. I've got to, I got to get someone else to wake me up, like just stratagems to sort of outwit your mm. need to sort of just be lazy and stuff like that. Like I'm saying like I just try to like buy as much like good content or like fill up my to-do list with a bunch of like productive things so then when I do have a chance to lay down I'm sort of doing like I relax with something it's not the worst thing you know what I mean like it's like the equivalent of like buying mm-hmm. a soda stream instead of like buying like drinking coke all the time or something like that but uh, <laughs> I think what you're saying is like you are just geared to be this superman like um, yeah. get everything done and you never have time I think you're in a good in a good place even, you know yeah you don't have time to be the lazy guy so you're sort of coming from the opposite direction as us I find myself when I chill out and I want to watch something stupid on TV and and drink a glass of coke like forcing myself to get like uh, a glass of sparkling waters and read something that will educate me a bit more I I also think that like kind of this podcast is also a way to tackle this guy that keeps us in like uh, mm-hmm. in the comfort zone and, and pulls us towards the easy and layback hobbies. I think I was actually facing this exact same <laughs> same question before starting recording, and I actually decided not to go and buy a glass of coke and, and to get some sparkling water that I'm staring at right now. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> so cheers. <laughs> well, my take is that I think buried in in this question is sort of like a presumption that the right thing to do is not be that guy. Like the guy who lays in bed all day, smokes pot, Hmm. watches old movies and cartoons. There's sort of like a, like that's commendable, but it's like there's higher pleasures or there's success is better than being happy and just lying around and stuff. And I think that's a survival strategy in terms of it's not possible, usually it's not possible to be a lazy person and do all those things because eventually you'll run out of money, you'll run out of time, no one's going to support you. So I think in general, society sort of adopted this like, you can't do that, but that's the wrong thing to do because that's how people get ahead in life and then they have the time to do that. But I think if there wasn't financial pressure and stuff like that, I actually don't think it's any more commendable to be a, you know, quote unquote successful person than it is just to mind your own business, watch old movies and cartoons. I actually don't think there's any I actually don't think you could say a pleasure is higher than another in that in that sense. But No, no, that's a very good point. But I think, I think. if 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 I was like super rich um and I just chose to like piss all my money away and just lay like in my socks all day and just watch tv i actually don't think that's a bad thing wouldn't you get sick of it well you might but then you would stop doing it but i think if you were happy doing it i don't think anyone else's opinion of it is important as long as you're not polluting or anything like that then i i don't think there's any duty for you to actually like do something that's like cognitively impressive or anything like that i I actually don't think it's i actually don't think there's any sort of correct answer you know but uh, like i read a couple of years ago um like an article that's had a couple of people in a in a fmri machine and started to track their brain activity while they keep thinking of um of different kind of people and an interesting thing is that there were similar patterns when you're thinking about other people and strangers and thinking about yourself in the future 
Hmm. And yeah, that's kind of interesting because it, it kind of points of an inherited issue with us planning our future. So I, I feel that I'm acquainted with it uh, very closely, that my intuition is generally for something that is uh, very short-sighted. So I might feel bad about, you know, uh, socially feeling bad, like m- maybe with because of social pressure and social norms, feeling not comfortable sitting and, and watching TV all day. But I think that I will be okay with it, but it will kind of drag me down this hole that eventually it will be harder for my future self to get out of. But because of this inherited problem, it's not even easy to imagine. Like you have to uh, mindfully be aware of it, that, mm-hmm. that it is happening. It, it probably happened also comes with experience, like being dragged to that hole a couple of times and then seeing how how maybe a lot of times it's hard to get out. Then you, you kind of try to avoid it next. Yeah, I guess yeah. you could make the analogy to sort of like exercise, like if you don't exercise, it's not it's not a wonder when you get overweight. Like, it's not like, how did that happen? Like, it, you can draw the connection. You know what I mean? So, like, every day that you're just eating, like, lots of junk food and not going to the gym, like, even though it might be good today, in the future, it's not going to pay off for you. But what I'm kind of saying is, like, the junk food eating, the gym skipping and stuff like that isn't actually inherently bad. It's only because we know that in the future, mm-hmm. you just won't be able to do it and it will suck. But if it was fine, if like, eating junk food and if there were people going to the gym, but it, it just didn't affect anything, then I actually don't think there would be anything wrong, wrong with it. I don't think having like a, a lack of will <laughs> is actually a bad thing if it is inconsequential. Anyway. Yeah, in a perfect world. Jaws? <laughs> and now for something completely <laughs> different. Let me start by saying that I kind of feel that everything we did up to now, um, the Deja Vu album, uh, I played it's inside. Um, it just sucks. And, yeah, uh, no, no. let's just start again. <laughs> <laughs> and Mel Brooks, the producers. It kind of felt like if we're going by this questing theme, then, you know, we've been adventuring around and all of these were kind of our um, random encounters. Then Jaws is somewhat of a mini boss because this movie is a giant hit. I've heard about it my entire life, always wanted to see it. I remember kids in the, uh, I don't know, in, I don't know, first grade told me about it and, you know, kind of scared me about it. I always wanted to see it. And, uh, well, here we are today. So this movie was directed by Steven Spielberg, released by Universal in 1975 to great acclaim. It's considered to be Spielberg's first major success. It is based on a book by Peter Benchley, which came out in 1974. That book, surprisingly enough, became a bestseller even before the movie came out. So it kind of opened the way for the movie to succeed, maybe, I don't know. And Benchley, the guy who wrote the book, he wrote the first few drafts of the movie, uh, but that they didn't really work. Uh, So they brought a guy named Carl Gottlieb to write the script as they go. And obviously, the music was done by the great John Williams. I'm going to go over the movie plot. Jump in if you have anything to add. The movie starts on a beach uh, where you see a bunch of teenagers and they're having a lovely night out. They're playing guitars, they're smoking, they're having fun. We see a couple of them kind of run off. The girl name is Chrissy. I don't know if the guy had a name. 
but they, you know, kind of run off. Chrissy tries to get the, this drunk dude to skinny dip with her. She goes in the water. He kind of passes out on the beach. And um, she dies. <laughs> in the movie, no one sees it happen. Uh, so the drunk dude the next day reports her to be missing. Then we meet Chief Brody, played by Roy Scheider, who's the um, chief of police in this island, Amity Island. Chief Brody takes this drunk dude with him, they go to the beach, they find Chris's body, and then they head back to the station where Brody gets a call from the coroner who informs him that the cause of the death seems to be uh, shark attack wounds. So uh, Chief of Police Brody tries to close the beaches, which is a sensible thing to do, but the mayor, played by Mary Hamilton, kind of prevents him from closing the beaches down because the whole economy of the town is built on the beaches, on the tourism. So they think, the mayor thinks that if they close down the beaches, then the economy would collapse and everyone would have to go on welfare. Uh, it kind of makes the coroner admit that the death might have been just a boating accident or something, so Brody kind of reluctantly accepts that he can't close the beaches down, He's not really letting his guard down, though, or he can't stop thinking about it despite himself. And in between everything, we kind of learn about Brody that, to a certain extent, he's afraid of the sea. There's a mention of maybe some an accident or a, a drowning when he was a kid, but we don't really know what's up. Anyway, so the beaches stay open, and there's another attack. There's a kid, uh, the Kintern kid, and uh, a dog named Tippet, and they die, which is very sad. And the kid's mom places a $3,000 bounty on the shark's head. And so everyone with anything that can float and a sharp pointy thing goes out to sea and try to catch the shark. Then we see a town meeting where the town protests against closing the beaches, which I, don't, I found weird because people have died. Uh, obviously, we're going to close down the beaches. But never mind, we get, the, uh, I think, the best line in the movie here. Brody says that they'll close down down the beaches, the whole town gets upset, very loud, and, and so the mayor says, he kind of backs down and says that they'll only close the beaches for 24 hours, and then we hear in the background a lady yelling, 24 hours is like three weeks. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> no, uh, because honestly, no, it's not. 24 it hours so is not like three weeks. <laughs> Anyway, then we meet Quint, a shark hunter. He kind of drives his nails on the chalkboard to quiet everybody down. He seems kind of like an odd fellow. He doesn't seem like he's very popular or anything in this town. Anyway, he offers his services to kill the shark for $10,000. And uh, then he leaves. He puts the offer on the table and he leaves. Anyway, uh, we see the whole town kind of tries to go out and hunt the shark. And at that point, Matt Hooper enters the picture. He's a brilliant young oceanographer. And uh, a shark expert, uh, he kind of does an autopsy on Chrissy, the girl who died in the beginning of the movie. And I don't know, he, he seems to be very experienced with that, which is nothing an oceanographer would do. <laughs> a bit alarming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he arrives on the island uh, to help deal with the shark problem. I think uh, Chief Brody asked him to come over and help. Anyway, the local fishermen end up catching a tiger shark and everyone are happy. They proclaim that the problem's dealt with and everything's fine. But Hooper and Brody think that this might not be the same shark that they're looking for. And uh, later they confirm that it isn't by cutting up its stomach and seeing that there's no little kid inside there. The mayor, you know, as usual, kind of ignores the main problem of the town. And um, he kind of ignores the fact that he's getting so fat from all the junk food that he can't even walk on his own anymore. Or wait, uh, 
no, that's that's another movie. <laughs> I was um, like, what? <laughs> like, I must have missed that. He's like slightly <laughs> overweight. Jesus, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he ignores the fact that the shark might still be out there as it is, you know, the 4th of July weekend, the biggest weekend of the year. They can't close down the beach. So um, he keeps ignoring the problem. Uh, the beaches stay open. And, well, you see the beaches are busy. They're filled with tourists. And there's some tension. Nobody's really going into the water at first. But, you know, after a while, eventually, people go in the water and everything goes back to normal until there's another shark attack. At first, there's a prank attack, but there's another shark attack. A guy's killed. And at this point, the mayor's kids were on the beach. So he kind of can't ignore the problem anymore. Uh, So he authorizes Chief Brody to hire Quint's services, uh, which he does. And to cut a long story short, the hunt begins. Our three adventurers, Brody, Hooper, and Quint, go out to sea on the Orca, which is Quint's boat. And interestingly enough, Orca, the killer whale, is uh, White Shark's natural enemy. And, well, they start tracking the shark. And you kind of see from the beginning that Hooper and Quint don't really get along. Their approach to the problem is a bit different. I mean, Quint looks at he wants to do things the old-fashioned way. And uh, Hooper brings a bunch of, you know, kind of fancy new equipment. So anyway, they go out to sea. Uh, night falls and they kind of get drunk. They exchange stories about scars from past experiences. And we kind of find out about Quint's past. He tells us about his experience in the USS Indianapolis, which we'll talk a bit more in depth a little later. Anyway, we kind of see that this experience kind of is what turned Quint into what he is today, into the, um, I don't know, kind of an oddball. And uh, at that moment, the shark decides that it's the best moment to start ramming into the boat. He kind of rams into the boat a couple of times and leaves after he damaged the engine. So our heroes spend the night working on the engine, trying to fix it. In the morning, Brody tries to contact the Coast Guard, but Quint destroys the radio with a baseball bat. Did you notice he had like four baseball bats as well? That's so Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Yep. That was such a weird scene. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think that tells us that Quint is obsessed with hunting the shark and Brody kind of tries to avoid facing his fears, the fear of, of the ocean, of the water. Anyway, the shark starts attacking with a vengeance. He, he keeps trying to kill that same boat. I mean, which um, the shark... Is very vengeful here. Anyway, they end up harpooning the shark. The line of the harpoon is attached to a barrel and the barrel floats. The strategy is to not allowing the shark to dive into deep water. Eventually, the shark should get tired. Then they can capture it. So one barrel doesn't work. A second barrel doesn't work. Eventually, they have three barrels stuck to his back, which I think is one of the coolest things in this movie. I mean, at a certain point, you only see where the shark is by those barrels, which is creates a very tense atmosphere. I liked it. Also saves money on the budget, so that's another bonus. At this point, Quint kind of tries to steer the boat towards shallower water. They talk about having a bigger advantage there, but he kind of overworks the engine on purpose, thus getting them stuck at sea, which also kind of makes me think that Quint became obsessive. Anyway, with all the damage that the boat has taken, the orca slowly starts to sink. I think they ran out of harpoons and barrels, so Quint tells who 
Hooper to start using his fancy new equipment. So Hooper gets into a shark cage with scuba gear. He takes with him kind of a spear that has strychnine in it or strychnine. He wants to stab the shark and kill it, but that plan fails and Hooper has to abandon the cage. He dives to the bottom and hides. The shark keeps attacking the boat, eventually eating Quint. Then at this point, Brody manages to shove an air tank into the shark's mouth. And while the boat is sinking, the shark swims toward him menacingly. He manages to shoot the tank with the rifle, causing an explosion that tears the shark into pieces. Then Hooper surfaces and along with Brody, they hang to a floating piece of boat and pedal back to land. The, the, that's where the credits roll. And um, if you've been patient and waited for the after credits scene, uh, you'd know that it's not really that clear. We kind of see Brody, Hooper, and the mayor, uh, you know, eating shawarma, looking out towards the sea. <laughs> they see a flash of light. They spot the Flying Dutchman, which tells them that Will Turner is coming uh, for an onshore visit. And uh, finally, we see a man signing papers for a rental boat, which, if you look closely enough, you can see that his signature says Moriarty, hinting as to who was behind all of this, but we can't really tell. Hmm. I didn't know there's an after credit scene, so this is, like, the first time I'm hearing about it, but... <laughs> that kind of sounds all over the place. The, the Flying Dutchman and Moriarty? Yeah, I I'm, I made that whole after credit scene up. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was like, did Avengers steal the shawarma scene? <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> That's a weird joke, you know. <laughs> I was, I was going to bring that Avengers thing up. I'm like, oh, did you guys know? But yeah, okay. Well, now I feel stupid. And the Flying Dutchman is like the, fly, the, the Pirates of the Caribbeans. <laughs> Yep, yep. And, and Moriarty, Moriarty is the from, end of um, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> yep. I, I just googled three most famous after credit scene, and I just wrote them in there. I haven't seen Pirates of the Caribbean, so I didn't I didn't know that. But the, Really? Um, yeah, but the um, Moriarty, I'm like, oh, wow, that's the same name as the guy in Sherlock Holmes, because I only watched that like this year. So <laughs> I was like, oh, what are the chances? You know, you were so coherent with, with just telling all the story, so it, I, I kind of took it as, a, as another fact. I'm not the best at delivering jokes, but I decided <laughs> to just go for it. First of all, what do you guys think of the movie? Uh, I I had already seen it, but as I was watching it, I realized I had remembered absolutely nothing. I think I re- the only things I remembered was like the boss fight with the shark, and I didn't even remember a lot of that. So it's probably been more than 10 years. So when I watched it, I thought, oh, here we go, another old film and stuff like that. But oh my God, like it was really enjoyable. It was like ranking it against like films of today. It's still like still was engaging, still was fun. And I watched it with two friends that had never seen it and they loved it. So yeah, it's really good. I was pleasantly surprised that it was a very good movie. I mean, originally I thought it was kind of a horror movie, but then you guys <laughs> called me and, and said that it's just, you know, a suspense one. And I kind of came with low expectation because the new Star Wars film is, is coming. Then I started seeing all the movies and like watching the old Star Wars movies that are also from the from the 70s. They're a bit slow. The whole pace of the movie can get a bit boring sometimes, but Jaws was just... I mean, there were parts where it kind of took a, a more laid-back pace, but as a piece, it was just great. It was always moving forward. The characters were, were kind of diverse, and each had its own tone. Their interactions were interesting, at least like between the three main ones and also the mayor. And I think what, what I probably enjoyed most is like kind of getting all, all the references that... Um, 
that I saw in other films and, and TV series along the years, and I never actually thought they were from Jaws. Like, did you know that, that the whole uh, fingernails on a chalkboard is from this movie? Where else did you see that? Ah, I, I, all the time. Like, every comedy where they talk about a problem and then some guy comes from the back and uh, brings the, the crazy solution, there's always this gag of... Hmm. <laughs> scratching there it sounds like something you know cow and chicken would do but i don't remember ever seeing that before yeah i say it all the time i didn't i didn't know it was from jaws either really yeah it's pretty crazy huh. and the whole way that that quint talks in in that part where he's kind of mysterious and uh he says that it will cost them and and tries to uh back them uh, towards the wall i think there's also a lot of references to it uh so that was really enjoyable but i think the one i like the most <laughs> And it's probably the silliest one is that there's I don't remember from which TV series, but after the credits, like when telling the um, all the companies that were responsible for for making it, then there's one company I, I don't remember its name, and you you can hear that somebody has Harry. and it's from Jaws movie. <laughs> like there's a part where where Brody sit, sits on the beach and, and there's this old guy that starts talking to him and their dialogue ends with, with Brody tells him that he has a bad hat. <laughs> he kind of cracked yeah, open at that time. familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if we're talking about things that we recognize from the movie, there's one scene that when it started, I was, oh my God, this is from here. I didn't know uh, the scar scene there when they're sitting in the boats and they're comparing scars from past experiences and everything. There's this exact scene in Kevin Smith's movie, Chasing Amy, where they're, you know, comparing scars from past sexual experiences, but it's, it's based entirely on that. It's almost the same dialogue. Really, I think there's also like a scar comparing contest in in Lethal Weapon. Hmm. Yeah, there is one. I forgot about that. Yeah, Mel Gibson and and that girl, and then they hook up. Yeah, I forgot about that. Maybe maybe it's based on the same thing. Barrett, don't you remember that scene from uh, Chasing Amy? They're sitting in a bar. They're drinking. They're comparing scars. Yeah, I, I remember that, but I don't I don't remember it in in enough details to say that it fits. It's very close, but yeah. uh, but when I saw that scene from Jaws, then I thought about Lethal Weapon. So um, let me ask you: This movie is considered like a big, huge classic. They're crediting it with kind of changing the way the movie industry worked back then. Have you read a bit about that? Um, no. Uh, I know it was meant to be, but I don't know. I feel like it was because it's one of Steven Spielberg's biggest films. I don't, I don't know if this alone changed film industry but it's hard to tell it's hard to tell you without seeing a lot of films before this and a lot of films after this but yeah i when i see films like die hard and a lot of other like kind of 90s films this is sort of on that level to me whereas i don't know if other films in the 70s could say that about themselves so yeah I, i can i can imagine this was sort of a game changer yeah as far as i've read this movie really really changed everything First of all, let's talk about the movie industry. Back then, there was no such thing as a, a summer blockbuster, you know? After Jaws came out and it just exploded, every studio tried to create the next thing for the summer. And you could see a trend 
in uh, movie release dates that everyone kind of aimed their big stuff at summer from that point on. And I think we can still see it today, except maybe today a lot of big movies release on Christmas. And also something that really changed then was how they released the movie. Because back then, if you had like a very good quality movie, you'd release it like only to big cities. And then you kind of spread it around slowly. But Jaws opened in every theater. Oh, maybe not every theater, but in hundreds of theaters. And back then that was considered something that, you know, low quality movies. awful movies did because then you can open quickly with a bang and it kind of diminishes the effect of negative reviews and then once everyone's up to you kind of seen the movie then you can just back off and and release something for a home video after jaws came out all the movies started releasing like they do today like in every theater which is very interesting and another thing is the effect this movie had on sharks have you read about that no i haven't but i Yeah, I can imagine it. Like, I feel like in the, in the movie, like the views on sharks, like living in Australia is also a little bit, probably a different perspective to you guys, but like, it's just such a battle of like what to do with sharks in Australia. So at the moment, like our main tactic is we put out just shark nets, I guess. So like there's sort of like a certain distance out from the beach where the sharks shouldn't mm. really be able to get through. But then again, once in a while we see like a hole, so I don't. I don't know how effective they are, but like back in this huh. day, it was like people were angry that they were shutting the, shutting the beach. Just, you know what I mean? It just seems like that the attitudes are a little bit different nowadays. Like people like get scared about sharks and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. I read a thesis by this history student who, who did his research on, you know, the impact of jaws on sharks before the seventies, when sharks were referred in books, They were referred to as kind of they, they are monstrous, but they were kind of considered docile. Like a lot of guides told you that if you meet shark um, underwater, just grab onto its fin and it'll take you back up to the surface and just swim away. And uh, <laughs> this movie kind of changed this. Um, before this movie, monster movies were kind of always set in weird, different places. worlds like Godzilla it's not realistic but this movie not only it's just a shark a normal shark the whole movie was portrayed on a background of normal familiar life which really tapped into people's fears so uh, after that movie the number of shark killings by human beings rose dramatically today the, the the situation is a lot better we're not killing as many sharks as after jaws came out but today's numbers of sharks around the world are still still just you know they're on the rise but they're so much lower than they were before the 70s which is awful a lot of interest in sharks was also sparked by this movie so we studied sharks a, a whole bunch more than we did before so this movie you know I, I think it, it had a bunch of influence on the movie industry and on real life things like you actual shark ecology that's crazy did you say the sharks um sharks uh, levels are on the rise again yep yep um happily yes oh, okay that's interesting yeah i've never seen a lot of spielberg's movies and i kind of always wondered why he's considered to be one of the biggest directors and i think his talents really show in this movie if, if i may say in this movie he really takes his time building the suspense and tensions and it pays off amazingly well now uh, he knows how to make the characters motivations clear without having to say them out loud 
And a lot of scenes play more than one part at a time. Like, you see a lot of scenes that enrich and widen the characters while telling us how they feel and also build suspension all in the same time. You don't see a lot of movies do that, I think. So I was very impressed by that. Yeah, I, I think that was the thing that I kind of hooked me the most. The first one hour, even more, like you don't even see the shark. Like you just get the feeling of it and, and, and there's a real terror that you feel towards it. But you never see it. You just get glimpses of it. By the way, I, I, I'm not sure if it's true, but um, I read that the reason it was done like that is because they made like this huge three-ton metal shark that can swim underwater, right? That's called Bruce. Ah, really? <laughs> so uh, it had a lot of mechanical problems. It, it just didn't work most of the time when they filmed it. So they so that changed a lot of uh, what they did. I mean, in the first script, the shark is seen swimming between all the people, all the swimmers in the beach, but the shark, like you said didn't work so they had to change it they shot all the swimmers from underwater which you know not seeing the shark created such such a good atmosphere yeah i i really like the idea that the shark wasn't seen for quite a while and even with the barrels as well being able to see the barrels yep. but not the shark i think that's another Same thing they thing. did that yeah. because of the shark's mechanics were so crap that they had to use the barrels and i thought that was that added suspense i think um steven spielberg's like um nickname for the giant mechanical shark was like the giant turd or something because it just constantly broke. <laughs> yeah. But it actually like um, didn't save the movie. The movie would, probably would have still been good, but it definitely improved like the sort of the visuals and the intensity of the movie. From what I've read, shooting on the ocean really gave them a lot of problems and a lot of things they had to change because of, you know, unexpected occurrences. Do you guys remember when Hooper goes down in the shark cage? According to the original script, he was supposed to die there. But, well, they had a team in Australia trying to film um, real great white sharks. And they, you know, they found sharks that are a bit smaller than the model they had. So they had like a smaller cage with a short actor in it, uh, dressed like Hooper. And they lowered the cage into the water, and then a shark swam by it, a great white shark. And, you know, the cage is small, so it makes the shark look bigger. And before the actor, before he got into the cage, the shark's nose got entangled in the rope uh, that was holding the cage. And it kind of started thrashing around and breaking everything. And they managed to shoot it, but they later saw that the cage is empty. So they changed the story to get Quint out of the cage. Hmm. That's another thing that they didn't expect. Yeah. Um, another thing I really liked is um, uh, John Williams' uh, movie. I think it really helped in creating the air of fear and tension in the movie. And I think what makes it special, you know, if you kind of compare it to other horror movies, I think horror movies in general would tend to keep to, you know, suspenseful, ominous music. But here, a lot of the times he would use more happy, more fun, more adventurous music. I think the best example for that is when they're going out to sea on the Orca for the first time. You would expect, uh, I would expect, to have like ominous tones in the background that kind of tells you that they're going towards maybe death or something uh, to face an um, unseeable enemy. But they have kind of a playful music there, and I think that kind of sets the feeling of uh, we're going on an adventure, which kind of gives the film a whole different identity. Yeah, I quite like that as well. It wasn't like all grim or anything like that. There was sort of like a sense of like discovery as well, especially even even the point where the whole town sort of gets up with their boat so i thought that was quite fun like i think the point of that scene though was that like they don't know the it's not an every man sort of job 
hunting a shark, but it was still it was still nice to have a sense of sort of optimism um, from the town. Yeah, I think it's uh, it was different. I didn't expect that. Let's uh, talk about Quint for a while. I just saw on Reddit this morning a theory about Quint, about having his name Quint, uh, hints to the fact that he's the fifth to die in the movie, uh, oh. which is interesting. <laughs> which, I didn't, I didn't think about that. Let me also add that that's definitely wrong because his name in the book is Quint and he's not the fifth to die there. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, well, that <laughs> oh, was fun. You just built it up and then <laughs> tore it down. And I enjoyed that three seconds thoroughly. Yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think of uh, Quint's speech about the USS Indianapolis? Uh, I didn't expect it, and I didn't remember it at all. I thought maybe even if I did remember it, I probably wouldn't have understood it as much. But um, hmm. yeah, I, I didn't expect Quint to have such a sort of um, rich backstory. So did they add that from the... Um, that wasn't in the book, was it, that, that speech? I don't know. I, I actually don't know. I think it wasn't. I don't think it was. I think they added it in, but... No, I thought it was. Um... If I remember correctly, they they needed a reason for Quint to be to have something in his past. But and Steven Spielberg called up his friend and he told him the story about the USS Indianapolis, and that's how it got in there. Yeah, I think it really sort of pulled Quint's story full circle, especially with the way he goes out. Like it's um, yeah, it's kind of poignant, but you know, it's yeah, it's really good. Again, Steven Spielberg really pulled this off. I mean, this speech or whatever you want to call it is i don't know i didn't measure how much time it takes but it's like five or six minutes it's really yeah, long it's pretty long it's fair it's fairly slow but it's not boring at all i mean you're stuck you're glued to the tv set and it's amazing yeah i agree i think it like other than it was an interesting story and, and it was done really good by shaw yeah robert shaw i forgot to mention it I, I think it came in a really good timing because we were experiencing uh, the whole horror of, of those shark attacks from kind of a far and a non-personal way. But then like he took it on, he brought it to such a personal note. And he also tells that story and then they start to sing, right? And, and it gets a bit silly. Mm-hmm. Then the shark starts to actually rumble the boat and, and you can't and you can't not think about what it just sold. So I thought it was also brilliantly put in the timeline of of, um, of the movie. You get to learn about Quinn's past and also you kind of get lulled into a sense of security before the shark attacks. It's brilliant. Yeah. Do you know that the USS Indianapolis story, that it was real? I read about the USS Indianapolis because as I was Googling it for the show, I realized that it was actually a real thing. And there was like, um, what, there was about 1,200 sailors and it was hit by two torpedoes by the Japanese submarine, just as just as you were saying. And um, do you remember how many how many shark attacks were, were carried out? I don't remember. I think they said 1,200 people went in the water, 316 came out. Yeah. Uh, it's a crazy story. And I think they, all in all, they were in the water for five days. Oof, that's wow. That's five days too many. Oh yeah, <laughs> they interviewed two people who were on the USS Indianapolis about the movie Jaws in the making of Jaws documentary, and you know I kind of wanted to know how they reacted to the scene in the movie. Uh, the, anyway, the first one said that he kind of went to the movie just to watch the the big movie that's out this summer, and the second one said that his kids told him, "Dad, we watch this movie, and you gotta go see it." This guy said, I'm not going to go watch a shark movie. I don't, I hate sharks. So (laughs) they kind of made him go and imagine going through the experience of the Indianapolis 
and then years later going to the movie and watching that scene it's crazy I, I can't even imagine it I can't even start to think what would go through your mind and I really wanted to know how they feel about it because yeah I can see them thinking it's sort of disrespectful because it's kind of implying that this occurrence in Quint's past kind of makes him the weird guy that he is today and both of them in the interview they said that he kind of gave them a voice and he really honored them which I thought was beautiful pretty crazy I think I think the count for the uh, USS Indianapolis um, casualties was well the shark casualties was they have it from a few dozen to 150 so I think there's a bit of I don't think they were taking notes or anything like that so but yeah jeez and I th- I think it's yeah I think it might be the one of the biggest shark attacks in history so mm, yeah that makes sense Before we uh, started this episode, I kind of asked you guys to think, how would you cast the movie if you if they redid it today and asked you to, to cast it? I'm very interested to see what you guys thought of. And um, I don't know what you guys did, but I, the way I said it, there's no rules. You can use any actor from any point in time, any age, any... I don't know, whatever you think, whatever works for you. Uh, who wants to go first? Well, I did Brody, Quint, Hooper... Ellen, uh, Ellen is um, Brody's wife, and Vaughn, the uh, the mayor. Do you want to go through like each character, and then we'll see, we'll compare them. Sure, that's a good idea. Cool. I have Brody, Quint, Hooper, the mayor, and the shark, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm I'm gonna say for last. <laughs> so um, let's start with Brody. Um, Peter, who would you cast to play Brody? So f- I actually quite like the casting of Brody. Um, I just thought it was Roy like Roy Scheider. Y- yeah, you just need you need someone who's sort of like not the alpha male, but definitely someone who's like has a moral compass which is can sort of plant their feet and really stand up for something and can kind of um I wouldn't say lead I would just say like persevere when there's um definitely opposing forces and I and I figure someone like Hugh Jackman you know Hugh Jackman yep yeah um and yeah I just figure he's sort of he's sort of got that look about him and he's about he's about the right age hmm. for it he's sort of like he's over the hill a little bit but he's still in good physical shape which is important so yeah um uh-huh. yeah I thought I thought he would be a good fit what did you think yeah I agree with you I I liked Roy Shatter in that part and I kind of didn't go far from Roy Shatter I want to stay you know I, I was looking for someone who can do kind of that role I didn't want to go change everything up or anything I chose to put in there um Moss Def he's a rapper he's a famous rapper but he was in um Be Kind Rewind the main guy the hero there have you seen that movie mm-hmm. uh no I haven't but I do know I do know who he is yeah mm. In, in Be Kind Rewind, he does kind of, you know, someone who's not extremely confident in himself, and he definitely has a moral compass, so I think he would fit here just perfectly. I think he would be, you know, just from his role in Be Kind Rewind, just inject a little bit more confidence in his character, and I think he'll be perfect here. What about you, Mario? I don't know, like, it was kind of hard for me, because I, I try to think of, like, famous like actors that I that are more recent and it kind of changed the whole tone of the movie so I kind of went with, with John Cusack I don't know it kind of just oh. the first thing that kind of popped into my head but That's I couldn't do it without kind of making it a bit comic you know it kind of became a funnier character uh, which I guess it can be okay but it's kind of weird that kind of the, the character that kind of orchestrates the whole thing is is a bit um, you know there's something with John Cusack is a, is a bit um, I don't know how to describe it wiry yeah yeah it's a bit like um, spasmy I don't know like 
jumps and yeah 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 so it, it kind of become becomes a bit funnier but i don't know maybe maybe it could work i think it's a good choice i think it fit perfectly and i mean i with my casting i kind of tried to keep everything you know faithful to the original but yeah you can totally take it in any direction you want that's what i tried to do as well with birdie who would you cast for quint uh quint um I'm not... which i think is the biggest part here yeah, I wanted to keep someone sort of brawny who could sort of play someone who was a little bit out of their mind, but you could tell was at one point put together and like could have gone through the mental sort of trauma of the USS Indianapolis. And I thought, um, I actually, this one, this is probably one of the ones I think would keep most faithful to the movie, and that was um, Gerard Butler. Gerard <laughs> Butler. Yeah. Huh. Can can he, do you think he could play the kind of um, odd guy, the the crazy guy? He's got a bit crazy. Do you think he could deliver that speech. I think if he grows out his sideburns a little bit and puts on a, like a crinkly shirt, I reckon he could play someone who's like really sort of an oddball character. But you can tell that he's sort of I don't know. He just has that look about him that at one stage he was all put together, but he could definitely sort of flare out a little bit. So. Um, mm-hmm. He seems a little bit ruled by his emotions, which I think, like, or he can play that sort of character. And I think that would suit well with sort of the baseball bat scene and stuff like that. But, you know, he definitely shows sort of fight in him and stuff like that. So, yeah, quite. I think I quite like that pick if it was Jared Butler <laughs> like doing that today. Yeah, it's a good pick. Yeah. On the same notion, it kind of took me to Jim Carrey, <laughs> actually, because of that bi- a bit <laughs> crazy vibe. And again, like this, uh, I, I kind of went with the comedy uh, vibe of the of the movie. So like, just imagine Jim Carrey runs all over the place and then grabs a baseball bat and starts smashing this ra- that radio. <laughs> and, and I know... <laughs> Man, I didn't think to take it to a comedy. If you take it to a comedy kind of movie... I think it's a perfect casting. I, that's yeah. great. Yeah. What about you? Uh, again, I tried to I tried to stay faithful uh, to the original, and I don't know. Um, I haven't seen this guy in a lot of movies. I went with um, Michael Parks. Do you guys know him? Uh, yeah, of course. Quick. Yeah. The, um... He did a few small uh, roles in Tarantino's movies. He played in Twin Peaks. He, he does all kinds of things. But I know him most from Red State. It's a, kind of a horror film by Kevin Smith. He plays kind of a crazy uh, cult leader. He plays the crazy part amazingly. And I think he can, he's a very talented guy. And I think he could take Quint's part and do it just perfectly. Um, I really wish we could have seen that casting. But I don't think anybody's recasting that movie. And also I think Michael Parks isn't with us anymore. So that's never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to Hooper. Peter, what do you got for Hooper? Uh, Hooper, this one is the one that this, uh, my, my previous two, I feel like sort of stayed faithful to the movie. This one would change it a little bit. Okay. I thought it would be, I think this guy could play the rich boy pretty well. Who's sort of like a little bit entitled and sort of saying like, oh, my gear will beat your like intuition or whatever and stuff. And I think he could go up well against Gerard Butler. Uh, I think Scott Eastwood. Do you know Scott Eastwood? I don't. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, he's played like a few roles and um, in some recent movies. Hmm. No, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything. Oh, okay. Um, I think the last film I saw him in was like Suicide Squad or something like that. But he's in like The Fate of the Furious and Gran Torino and stuff like that. So I think he was in, oh yeah, he's in Overdrive. Mm-hmm. That's the one as well. Um, but yeah, I just think he could play that sort of like entitled sort of young kid that would piss off um, Jared Butler and he can sort of bring all the tools and stuff like that and hmm. 
yeah, that I think it'd be an interesting sort of addition, yeah. Did um I don't know how familiar you guys are with Paul Rudd, but did anyone see the similarities between Hooper and Paul Rudd? Like there were scenes, especially during the speech. Now that you mention it, oh my god! When he does that faces when he tries to uh, to mock uh, Quinn, yeah, it was very Paul Rudd. <laughs> oh, oh man, it, I didn't think of that. The whole time I was watching it, I was just imagining Paul Rudd, and I was saying it to my friends. I'm like, "Do you not see it?" And then they were saying, like, oh, "I don't know," but like, "Oh my god." <laughs> Just identical. If any listeners agree with me, just, God, tell me, tell me. I just need to know. Like, I, I was Googling it. I thought they were brothers or something like that. Like, like you know, some, some ancestry shared, but they weren't. I was like, I was so amazed. They're like doppelgangers. But um, yeah, just the expressions and the voice, the voice is dead on. And um, just, just listen to the scene with Quint's speech and just watch like his expressions. They're, yeah, yeah, they're, they're sitting dead on. in the background. And... Yeah, they're just dead yeah. on. It's just amazing. So from that point onwards, I just couldn't stop looking at him. I was like, oh my God, it's Paul Rudd. <laughs> it's Paul Rudd. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. Barrio, who would you cast for uh, Hooper? Um, I thought about Emma Stone. I was kind of missing a bit more, uh, you know, female leads in, in the movie. Uh, so I thought, and Emma Stone is so great in pretty much everything. Um, so I kind of thought that she can bring this, like a different approach to, to the character. And it could kind of make the interaction between Quint and Brody and, and her as Hooper in a very different way. Not necessarily in a romantic kind of way, although like the part where they get drunk yeah. In, in the boat, when Cooper and Quint get drunk in the boat, it will take on this totally different uh, direction. I thought it was it will it mm-hmm. might be interesting. That's actually a good pick. I haven't seen her in a lot of things, but yeah, I definitely agree though. I would. Um, I also went with a female actress. Damn. So I'm the misogynist. <laughs> Damn. Yep. <laughs> um, for Hooper, I thought Sandra Bullock could really pull it off. She has that kind of a cocky vibe that I, I think she could really take this part, you know, from one perspective, stay faithful to it. But from a second perspective, give it some more uh, personality. I thought Sandra Bullock could be a, a great fit for this. Well, Sandy B is just great in everything. So it's like it's like saying Meryl <laughs> Streep. It's... Uh... <laughs> Well, did you guess, Peter? I'll go straight to Vaughn. For Vaughn, so there. The mayor. I got mayor. one for him too. Uh, mine's sort of generic. I don't. I'm not like super proud of it, but um, I would have gone with um, Robert Redford. Do you guys know Robert Redford? Yeah. He's he's sort of like generic evil guy in the movies, or at least the movies I've seen. He was in Captain America: Winter Soldier. Uh, which is one of my favorite Oh, yeah, he'd be perfect. Yeah, he would be perfect. I don't know if it's, like, I don't know what you can do with that character, but I thought I thought it would be nice, especially in the scene in the hospital where the guy's like, oh, my kids are in those oceans, and then he signs the agreement to let Quint um, yeah. hunt the thing. Yeah, um, yeah, I thought that movie, uh, I thought that scene in the movie would be um, kind of cool with Redford in it, so, yeah. I went with uh, Mary Hamilton, which is to say that I would bring the same actor back to do that uh, that part again. I thought it was great. <laughs> I thought he fit perfectly. He has the face to be that dumb mayor who ignores the problems of his town. I thought I would just bring him again. Uh, and exactly for that reason, the first thing that popped to my head is Bill Murray. <laughs> oh, Bill Murray. I mean, he could be. He could have been great in yeah. that role. Huh. Uh, what else do you have, Peter? 
Um, the only other one I had was Ellen. Yeah, I feel like she didn't really have too much personality, so I just wanted someone that would um, blend well with Hugh Jackman. So I went with another Australian actor, and I went with um, Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I can totally see that. And um, in the book, Ellen Brody has a bigger part, which they had to cut from the movie because it was going long, but yeah, Nicole Kidman could pull something interesting here. What role does she play in the book? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but uh, she's a big city girl. She gets bored on the island and she starts to look for drama and she hooks up with Hooper. She used to date his brother when she Ooh. was living in New York or something. And uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what's the payoff of this storyline, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's there. I thought that if they redid the movie and I had to cast it, then I would recast the shark um, because... You've heard me say it a, a thousand times. I'm a Kevin Smith fan. And in one of his earlier, um, an evening with Kevin Smith, people just ask him questions and he answers them on stage. And in the first one, I think I saw it when I was like in high school, years before I saw Jaws or anything, really. He said that he thinks Ben Affleck is such a good actor. He could do anything, even the shark in Jaws. So <laughs> if if they redid this movie, Ben Affleck does a shark. <laughs> yeah, Ben Affleck's a great actor, but... Um... Yeah, if I if I was recasting the shark, I think I would recast it as a dolphin. <laughs> when you were saying Kevin Smith, I was sure you're gonna go with either walrus or a giant spider. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, before we close, I, I kind of just want to say that. There was something very interesting to me in this movie because the whole oceanography, the whole sailing bit really kind of spoke to me because uh, I don't know if you know, but my, I did my uh, bachelor's degree in um, marine sciences, which which is kind of uh, a mix between biology and oceanography. So the whole oceanography um, character, the whole um, Hooper character kind of, kind of spoke to me. I don't know anything about fish or sharks, but um, we also, you know, during the bachelor's degree, we also sail a lot. We, I, I have a skipper's license and um, a lot of what Quint was doing on the boat, a lot of the little things it did on the boat were familiar to me, you know, were things I know of and it just feels like real life so i kind of felt a connection to both quint and hooper because you know sailing around studying the oceans and stuff i at the moment i'm doing i'm studying environmental studies and i'm researching um soft corals in the red sea so it's very very different from what they're showing in the movie but i i kind of felt a connection to it I don't think I, I felt close to it like like you described, but I definitely enjoyed the movie. And again, it kind of took me by surprise. It was so good when it was made so so long ago. And, and all the references to current pop culture was just uh, great to find out. So great success. Yeah, I didn't really approach it as sort of like a historical sort of film or landmark film or anything. I just went in for a nice movie and it delivered so if you're contemplating whether to watch it well you've just wasted your hour on this podcast because you should have watched it at the start but (laughs) you've made it this far and you haven't watched it definitely still watch it it's it's good I just realized that we just spent like 50 minutes talking about a movie that's 40, 45 years old. And we not once mentioned that the effects look old and outdated, uh, which is a compliment to the movie. Well done. Mm -hmm. Didn't need to. Yeah. Yes. Cool. So next episode, um, we'll be talking about Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Right, Peter? You want to tell us about it? Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Where do you start? Today, it's actually being adopted by a lot of sort of people when they sort of start 
a brand of Stoic philosophy. But um, in terms of importance, it's sort of it's an interesting fit because it sort of comes after Plato, um, Socrates, Aristotle, and such. But it's it's actually written by the only Roman emperor who is also a philosopher. And um, I guess you could say there were um, there were his own sort of um, personal collection of um, well, I guess you could just call it philosophy. And um, mm-hmm. they were never intended to be um, produced for common consumption, but they were. And now it's a timeless collection of um, short aphorisms that say a lot about uh, humanity. I don't know too much because I haven't read it yet. So yeah, personally, I sort of dabble in sort of philosophy a little bit, like. I sort of go past like the big philosophers, obviously the big Greek philosophers and Kant and the um, utilitarians and such. But this one's one that I sort of, I dismissed a little bit because I'm not so much of a Stoic, but I think people who aren't Stoics still get quite a lot of value out of it. So it'd be nice to sort sort the strong from the weak, I think, like we can actually see what is sort of just jazzed up self-help and what is really kind of um, profound sort of advice and sort of see where it sits in the 21st century and um, hopefully we get something out of it so yeah this could go really good or really bad I don't know yet (laughs) yeah if the listeners are thinking about um, reading or um, listening to this book it's not a super long book it's um, on audible it's only about five and a half hours so when you compare that to most audiobooks are probably about 12 13 hours and um, philosophy books tend to be even longer so um yeah, five and a half hours. If um, we tend to record these every two weeks, so for us, we'll we'll be listening to about three hours uh, each week or whatever floats your boat. But yeah. um, it's it's really not too much. Like for something that's so such a landmark piece, if you just do three hours a week, um, which is like a lot of people go to the gym more than that. So um, yeah, and you can get something out of it. I think it's definitely accessible, which is something you want out of a philosophy book because there's a lot of philosophy books which mm-hmm. you need to know about, like quantum physics and stuff to really understand. So this one um, seems to be a nice little gateway into sort of philosophy. Cool. Yeah, I'm waiting for this episode. I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, and, uh, well, we'll see how it goes. So thank you, Peter. Thank you, Barrio, for staying true to our goal. And uh, thank you, listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of the quest. And uh, we hope that you join us uh, next episode. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Yeah.